Welcome to The Brand Collective, a podcast about our favorite brands, featuring stories from the marketers and creatives behind them. I'm your host, Nick Ross. With me, your co-host, Mackenzie Koss. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Brand Collective podcast. Today, we have Sia Spaulding, Director of Advertising at Farmers Insurance. Welcome on, Sia. We're so excited to have you. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's exciting to be here. To start off, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be uh, leading advertising at such a notable company as Farmers Insurance? Yeah, you know, I am an ad woman turned client. So I got my start over on the agency side of things uh, and then made the transition client side. But I think the origin story, right, is probably the most interesting thing to talk about. Like, where did it all come from? What got you thinking about that? So um, I'll give you a little bit of color on that. I got my undergraduate degree at UCLA. And while I was there, I was in a student organization called the Student Alumni Association. And that organization was responsible for putting on some of the largest and most iconic events across campus. And one of those big events was called Spring Thing. Uh, So Spring Thing is is pretty notorious now. It it started back in the 40s. And it was really um, this sort of this uh, singing competition amongst the sororities. It was like a little bit more of a Greek-like thing. But it very quickly sort of escalated and became sort of a larger-than-life event. And now it's sort of regarded as their oldest and greatest musical tradition. So it's all about bringing sort of the best and the most um, most exciting sort of musical talent across campus onto this big stage and giving them the opportunity to showcase what they've got. We bring in celebrities, industry professionals, and things like that um, to really sort of heighten the competition and sort of get their, you know, help them get their start. And it's actually launched the career of a few different artists, um, people like... Sarah Bareilles, Maroon 5, like there's been a, quite a few people that have sort of That's come out awesome. of that. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a, a really exciting um, event to be a part of. And so in my sophomore year uh, at UCLA, I was put in charge of the marketing for that event, um, which is a bit of a daunting task, uh, but also super exciting. So our organization would partner with what was called the Alumni Association, and they're sort of responsible for managing the UCLA brand globally. Um, and they were really sort of helping us show us the ropes on traditional advertising and what that looks like, things like print, out of home, like this is how it sort of gets done. But I was going to school at a time when social media was brand new, right? Like we're, we're not talking about Instagram, that didn't exist yet. Um, we're only talking about Facebook and it was exclusively for college students and then just sort of just opening up to sort of the wider public. And so as I was sort of put in charge of, of marketing, they looked at me and said, hey, look, we're going to help you figure out all the print, the out of home, the traditional stuff. But you've got to crack this this nut on social media. Like, what does that look like? We have no idea. Like, this is kind of your guys' thing. Go figure that out. And so I partnered with a team there and we put together um, what was one of our first social campaigns ever. It's so new. And we put together sort of a bunch of different digital collateral videos, things like that, putting together what you might call some of the first like viral pieces of content, at least on that campus, right? Like, I don't want to go so far as to label something viral but you know it was like early days and uh, it spread uh, organically right exactly there was no paid at the time you know it was just <laughs> one of those things where it was like everyone was figuring it out and uh and so for the first time in the show's history when our tickets went on sale we sold out in minutes it was sort of this like shocking change for the for the organization for the event and sort of a really exciting thing to be a part of And so that was, I think, the moment for me that I was like, oh, my God, this is it. You know, this is this perfect blend of creativity and psychology and business uh, in a way that just that just makes sense. So 
I ended up switching my major over. I was I was originally looking at English and philosophy and sort of diving into that. Um, switched over to communication studies. Ended up putting together a bunch of different marketing for groups on campus, but then also taking that outside. So I ended up working with Center Theater Group. Uh, that was sort of like my first sort of paid gig where I was managing the social media efforts for all three of their theater theaters across LA. So Center Theater Group manages the Amundsen, the Mark Taper, and the Kirk Douglas theaters. And each of those has a bunch of different plays going on right in succession. So you're like managing multiple brands at multiple locations all together. Uh, and it was that same sort of thing, right? They were kind of like, we'll teach you the ropes. We'll teach you uh, broadcast. We'll teach you television. We'll teach you radio, social media, you know, figure this out for us. Like help us get this done. And so same sort of kind of endeavor, sort of trying to crack the code, figure out what's going on there as social media is coming of age. Um, and then after finishing all that up and, and graduating, I just had a mentor at CTG who said, you know, the in-house experience was super cool for you, but you kind of seem bored, even though you're managing multiple productions at multiple theaters. Like, I think you're kind of one of those people that wants more on their plate. So I recommend going to an ad agency. And that was sort of what kicked me off to the agency side of things. Um, and I got my start over at a full service creative agency in San Diego, back in my hometown uh, called Vitro. And I worked on a ton of different clients. So QSR, beauty, retail, et cetera. Um, did a lot of different work for a lot of different brands there to really sort of, you know, know the ropes, learn sort of how it all gets done. And then uh, while I was working there, I went back to school and got my master's over at USC. So I got my master's in communication management um, from USC and, and sort of used that to make the jump over to the client side. And so now I'm working in financial services. I'm leading sort of the advertising development at Farmers Insurance. And so right now my team manages the strategic and creative development for all of our brand and performance creative uh, nationwide. First off, it's such a testament to education and mentorship and ambition. Like it feels like your story is just full of all these wonderful lessons. Um, do you mind sharing a little bit about how your agency experience paired with that graduate student experience prepared you for this, you know, senior role? One of my favorite things about advertising is that it's always reimagining itself. Um, and I picked that word intentionally because I don't think it's reinventing itself in a meaningful way. I think there's something really interesting about our industry because we are constantly revisiting the tried and true, right? Like going back to the basics, the nuts and bolts of what works while simultaneously exploring something totally new, right? And I think that my experience is sort of a testament to that. So when I was at UCLA and doing things on campus, I was learning things like print and out of home, the sort of like nuts and bolts of what works. And then trying to figure out what could I take from that and apply to a totally different medium as it's developing, right? So we're constantly flying the plane while it's in the air, sort of kind of trying to adapt to sort of consuming or ch uh, changing habits and sort of consumers' media habits and sort of how the platforms are changing, all these different ways that things are sort of evolving over time, but never losing sight of like what's worked in the past and how it applies. So I think the same can be said at the agency you're really learning the ins and outs of how it gets done, not just in developing things like print, out of home, broadcast, et cetera, but also learning the process, right? What it takes to sort of put together that strategic idea, the research that goes into that, and how that carries its way through the creative development process, I think is really important. And I think one of my favorite quotes, I, I know I kind of mentioned this to you guys previously when we were talking on the prep call, 
is from a creative director who wrote uh, an open letter to advertising. Uh, it was several years ago and it sort of made its way around, but man, oh man, does it stick for me. Um, and the quote that he has, because I, I had it ready, I was prepared this time, <laughs> is uh, advertising. <laughs> this is what he says. He says, advertising is thankless, morally dubious, usually pointless, shockingly dysfunctional. Only the mentally tough and slightly deranged can hack it or would even want to. But if you can last a while, when you come out on the other side, you realize you're walking around with a degree unlike any other. There's no education like it in the world. And so I think at least for me, you know, when I talk to sort of uh, college students or recent graduates, one of the things that I stress is, is the benefit of starting on the agency side and really understanding how the sausage is made, uh, because it really benefits you as you take your career to new heights, right? And especially as you transition client side. I find that as a client, it's really beneficial to have that education to understand exactly what goes into developing the work, not only because you know, it allows me to sort of push and pull, right? Like I kind of know how long that takes or sort of what goes into that. Maybe I can push a little on the timeline or we can negotiate a little bit when we're getting to contracts and things, but also because it really fuels your empathy, right? Like you understand what these, these teams are going through and sort of how they're bringing that work to life, that it's their baby, that it means so much to them. Um, and it's really precious. And so I think that it brings a really important perspective to the development of the work um, that you might miss, you know, if you haven't sort of been there, boots on the ground, developing the work with that team. I did want to say, I think I noticed a very familiar character in your background, if I'm correct, on your door. <laughs> is that Professor Burke? You are I'm... correct. Okay. <laughs> yes. I was like, this I'm is, pretty sure I see him back Burke there. Character. Yes. I know. That is <laughs> awesome. That's fantastic. I was like, I have to say something. Um, he's looking very, very good back there. I love it. Um, in addition to your work at Farmers, I just want to pivot a little bit because you mentioned this when we talked earlier on our prep call, is that you're also an author. And I was hoping that you could share a bit about your book and kind of what inspired you to write that and everything. So the book is called Treading in Toxicity. And it's really an output of my graduate degree. So when I was going to USC, one of the big things for their Master's of Communication Management program isn't that you have to defend your thesis, right? Sometimes you pour blood, sweat, and tears into this thing, and you've got to stand and deliver and sort of explain why it all works. I think USC pushes you a step further and asks you to do something meaningful with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, since I had just spent two years reading, writing, doing these long sort of drawn out papers and things like that, I felt like it was the time to write a book if I was ever going to do it, right? Like that had been a bucket list item. It was like, this is something I want to do. And if I was, if there was ever a time, it's probably now. So I took a lot of the research that I was doing at USC and sort of used that to fuel uh, the book that I put together. So it's really a scholarly self-help book and it's divided into two parts, right? So the first part is incredibly academic. It's all about identifying toxic work environments, understanding the behaviors that take place within them, and sort of talking about the strategies that have been set in place or that are sort of current best practice to sort of eliminate that, that toxicity, that dysfunction from the workplace. The second half of the book is a bit more practical. So one of the things that I personally took issue with as I was digging into all of that literature is that oftentimes these academic studies are really looking at interpersonal interactions, right? They're looking at this dysfunctional behavior that's taking place with, between people. But then you get to the end of this 
long paper, right? Like months and months of research and this big, you know, synthesis of all this information. And at the end, they're sort of making these recommendations to organizations at a macro level. They're sort of saying, here's what you need to do. You need to have policies. You need to sort of have these kinds of codes of conduct or these different HR things in place. And to me, it felt like the big gap there was really what about the people that you've been studying, right? What about all of these individuals who are having to undergo these sort of traumatic experiences? What about them? Because even if you were to take these different strategies and things and put them in place in an organization, it's going to take a while, right, for an organizational culture to sort of develop and change over time. What do these people do during that process? So the second half of the book is a first start at sort of filling in that gap and providing uh, what I like to call workplace warriors, right? Like people that are just trying to get it done and sort of make it make it through the day, um, the strategies that they need to sort of survive those environments. So it's really a testament to, I think, the importance of organizational culture, you know, today. I think that toxic work environments are cer certainly a trendy topic. And while they can be a little like, you know, you can say the title of the book and you see some eyebrows raised, you have some people being like, oh, that's dark a little um, it's really more about making sure that you're fostering those connections, building a sort of positive work culture from the ground up or revolutionizing it, right? If you find you're at a company that's been around a while and, and needs a little help. That's phenomenal and so important. I feel like now more than ever, as we've all been shifting over the last few years and what a workplace culture looks like from perspective of if you're going into an office, if you're doing a hybrid model, if you're all remote, how are you still fostering that connection? And then if those, you know, potential toxic situations come up, it's not like you can just sweep that under a rug. I, it's, I love the name of your book and I'm definitely going to be reading it after this podcast, but it's, it's such a unique perspective. Cause like you said, you're filling the gap where some companies might be just like letting people kind of slip through the cracks as far as, okay, what do we do with implementing this? How does this look for each different team? Um, because everyone's different. There's different personalities working together. There's different, you know, uh, personality tests that you can take and how teams work and what work environment people work best in. Um, I think that's phenomenal and extremely important. How has your own experience and writing this book led to you implementing this um, at your own team at Farmers? And have you seen a good like trickle effect since you've been there? Totally. I think it's important to remember that like I wrote this book before the pandemic, published it during the pandemic. And to your point, like so much has changed. But in kind of the same way I was talking about in advertising, right? It's like so much has changed, but so much has stayed the same. I think yeah. what organizations have really sort of has opened their eyes in the pandemic, I think, is that a lot of cultures, right? Like quote cultures were based yeah. on like free food or sort of like <laughs> these like gifts and, and kind of interesting little yeah. things that when we got stuck at home, that falls away. And it's like, oh my God, our culture was centered on coffee and donuts every, you know, Thursday. And now we can't send coffee and donuts. What do we have to hold on to? Right. Yeah. And I think that's the whole point is understanding that an organization's culture has always been important. And leadership has usually cared about that from a productivity standpoint. Right. And I think mm -hmm. that conversation is resurfacing a lot as we talk to returning to the office and sort of what do we get out of that? But I think in today's day and age, it's also so much more than that, right? A company's culture is no longer their best kept secret. With social yeah. media and review websites, 
investors, clients, customers, they're also taking a look at like how your organization operates and it's impacting their decision to do business with you. So it's not just an HR thing. It's so much more than that. So how do I relate to farmers, right? I think it looks a little different now than it did a few years ago. I'll give you a couple of examples. So more in the peak of the pandemic, we sort of instituted, uh, one of the things I instituted across our team was a sort of like gamified, asynchronous competition for engagement, right? So we broke our team up into a bunch of different like sub teams. We sort of had them name themselves and sort of get some sort of theme going, like build some bonding. And then we put together weekly and monthly competitions that they could compete in to sort of like earn points. But the big thing is that it was meant to be asynchronous, right? So it's not saying like, you need to carve out time in your day to show up on a Zoom call and like check the box. That's not what it was about. It was sort of like in your time, when you have a minute, make sure that you participate, get to know your people. And then we'll sort of make that a competition, right? And have a big reward at the end of a quarter and sort of celebrate the teams that did well. And then we'll shake it up and do it all again next quarter so that you're bonding with the different people across different time zones. That was sort of one of the big ways that we sort of changed the game, um, at least at Farmers, to make sure that we were engaging with each other and having personal re- you know, interactions instead of just the professional, hey, I need this at this time. Like, how do we get this done? So yeah. that was sort of what it looked like. Now I think we're in a moment where we're re-envisioning what that's going to look like. We're returning to the office this September. We're going to be there three times a week. Um, and we're spread out across the country. So I think for us right now, it's, it's sort of looking at that and saying, what about that still works? And then what about that needs to change to sort of meet the current environment? So I won't say we have all the answers, you know, in this exact moment, but we're certainly talking about it um, and excited to sort of take it to the next level with this uh, with this new change. I want to talk about kind of a theme that I'm getting from both the subject of your book and 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 this evolving work culture is maybe work culture used to be defined as like top down, that just leadership looks around and goes, okay, this is what we need to do. And then everybody who's just considered a worker would just have to sort of suffer under whatever policy happens. Whereas now uh, with transparency and everything, workers have a voice in that. And it's more of a communication to reach a shared goal, which is assuming, you know, business success, profitability, you know, that conversation is really uh, striking to me. Yeah, I think that I think that's like a fair assessment. I think that it's sort of everyone's responsibility to ensure that their own individual experience and sort of those around them are sort of improved, right? And I think that even just as a society, right? I think that the pandemic sort of changed the game, right? Like you were getting a view into people's homes, even like we're having now, right? Like this in a previous world, this would have been like an in-person thing, but now you can kind of get a peek behind the curtain. You see the sort of chaos in the room or the interesting artistic choices. Yeah, like- I have a six Like the Professor Bird that you see. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's the thing is like, you got to meet people's partners, people's pets, people's children, and really get a peek behind the curtain. And I think that humanized us in a really important way. And I think that in a lot of ways, it sort of empowered us to take a little bit more control over our day-to-day working environment and those working relationships. And so I think that it just gives us a new opportunity to, like you said, shape that culture 
from the ground up if we take that opportunity, right? So I think it's all about just making sure that you're making the most of it, not just for yourself, but the people that are around you. Can you talk about working with such an iconic advertising campaign as the J.K. Simmons campaign? How long has it been running? And uh, what did you come into when you first arrived at Farmers? Yeah, so that's been around for about 10 years now. About 10 years ago, yeah, we sort of reinvented our our logo. We brought in a new character. We put together our mnemonic. And to your point, I mean, I think it's one of the most interesting things uh, about working at Farmers. It's like anytime I introduce myself, the first thing people do is sing the jingle back, you know, like without fail, every time I'm like, oh, there it is. Um, and it was cool. We actually, um, one of the composers who worked on the original mnemonic about 10 years ago with us, um, he did a TED talk recently in, in Culver City here in LA. And he was talking about the sort of the power of music in branding and sort of what that can sort of bring to the table. And so he used Farmers as one of the examples. And it was so cool because he, he got on the uh, piano and he played the first half of the jingle and the entire auditorium sang it back to him, like emphatically. <laughs> That's and, and we were shocked. I talked to him. Yeah, I talked to him <laughs> after. And, I, and he, he kind of said, he said, look, you know, I knew that like you were going to sing it and some of my like friends and family that are in the audience. Like I knew I was going to get something, but holy smokes, that was quite the reaction. Like it was. It was big. It, it you know made you feel good about the brand and the work that you're doing for sure. Yeah, it's it's just it's incredible. And can you talk about the efforts to continue to evolve within that framework? Yeah, you know, insurance is an interesting category because you know it's pretty common knowledge that people are going to quote the first couple of brands that come to mind when they're actually in sort of a quoting time period in their life, right? So they bought a new car or they're getting a new home, they're sort of in these major life moments that would trigger uh, the need for insurance. And really, they're just operating off of whatever they can think of. And so you see across the category, all of our competitors and, and us included are working to sort of put together a slew of like brand icons that really sort of stick in your mind and sort of are that little earworm, whether that be a jingle, whether that be a tagline, you know, whether that be um, whatever it is to sort of make sure that when that moment arises, that's what you're thinking of. And I think that that's the really interesting and also the really exciting part of working in insurance is that there is no physical, tangible product, right? Like there isn't like, look at this widget, like here's why it's awesome. It's really selling you in on this intangible thing that in a lot of ways, you hope you're never going to have to use, right? Like you don't want one of these moments to befall you. You're certainly going to be comforted by the fact that you know that you have someone in your corner that's going to take care of you and that, you know, that you've made the right decisions, but you really don't want to get into those situations either. So it's a very interesting balancing act to sort of make sure that you're top of mind, make sure that you're a brand that these people are thinking of, but also not in sort of a, a scary and, and sort of, uh, you know, dark way, because these are really disastrous moments that you, you don't want to think about, you know? Those ads specifically really walk on that line between like showing the possibilities uh, and, and, and wrapping you in a little hug of like, we're going to take care of you. Totally. I think that's one of the things, you know, historically we, we did our, our, you know, we know from experience campaign where we, we showed uh, that we knew a thing or two because we'd seen a thing or two, right? 
Um, and we were showcasing all of these crazy claims that we had seen and covered. And I think that was a really fun way for us to showcase the breadth of our experience, right? We've been around for 95 years um, and, and we've seen a lot of different stuff. Um, and so you can feel confident, you know, choosing our brand because we've covered some some wild and crazy things and it's quite unlikely, you know, that you're going to find yourself in a situation like that. Yours will be much more, you know, cut and dry than, than the things that we've sort of taken a look at. So I think that's been an interesting way to do it. You see a lot of our competitors taking it in a lot of different directions, but I think that, you know, it's a, it's a fun category to work on in part because the advertising, the marketing is really sort of carrying the way and it gives us the freedom to really be creative, right. And find new and interesting ways to tap into the cultural zeitgeist and, and sort of make sure that we're relevant, that we're sort of involved and that you're remembering us, right. That we're there. Are there any techniques or tactics that you use to keep your team tapped into the culture, tapped into what's going on, excited about what's next? One of the things that I sort of have tried to instill in my team is sort of two, two really big questions. And, and you guys have heard this from me. It's really about understanding what's the last thing you learned and what's the last thing you shared, right? And the weird thing is that if you think about it, those questions are like kind of deeply personal, you know, like, I don't know that we would ever like have an open conversation about that, but it's more like self-reflective of like, am I learning something new? Am I sharing new information? Like, what does that kind of look like? And I think that that really infuses the way that we approach the work. So I think like on an annual basis, we're really questioning all of our assumptions. And that includes everything we've learned, right? It's not just about what do we know, but how do we know it? And then does that still apply today, right? Especially over the last couple of years with the pandemic, it's like, everything that we're learning over time sort of comes with a grain of salt because that was a very unique moment in time um, that we may or may not ever revisit ever again, right? And so some of these things that yeah. we sort of feel are truisms, right, is we're like laying the foundation for like, okay, this is what we know to be true from historical performance. And these are things that we can springboard off of. Before we do that, we take a moment to ask, is that still right? You know, do we need to revisit that assumption or is it safe to say that this holds true? So I think at least on an annual basis, we're going back to the basics and sort of saying, what do we know? And does all of that information still hold? Like, is there anything in on the horizon that we need to revisit because society has changed, culture has changed, consumption habits have changed? What is it that needs to sort of pivot to be more relevant today? You know, um, and so I think that's, that's sort of one of the ways that we're looking at it. And I think in addition from a, like a creative standpoint, I think we're also changing our mindset to be more hypothesis focused. So instead of just putting together a slew of creative and just knowing like, this is awesome because it's funny or entertaining or it resonates really well, like these are just things that work, right? It's also, what are we going to learn from this? When we put this out into the market, if this does well, what do we now know? What do we add to those assumptions? So it's like, how does everything that we do build on this collective knowledge and then reevaluating that knowledge as we go forward? So I think that's kind of how it feeds itself into changing the, the mindset, thinking about what we're going to learn from something, and then making sure that the things we have learned still make sense as we move forward over time. It's even relevant to, to the themes we were talking about earlier about just workplace culture. It feels like uh, again, it's like a conversation that's continually evolving and, and allowing for 
meaningful change and, you know, going in a good direction. It's, it's very cool. It really does dovetail nicely to culture because I think that that's like a totally like a practical take, right? Of like, okay, what are we learning? What do we know? How does it apply? Like, can it be capitalized on? Does it need to be revisited, et cetera? But it also can be applied from a developmental standpoint, right? So as you're talking about the talent on your team, if they're reflecting on what is it that I've learned lately? What is it that I've shared lately? Those are things that, you know, ruminating on those questions bring up really important conversations around their sort of professional growth, right? Like, have they attended a conference? Have they felt like they're gaining meaningful skills over time? Like, do they feel like they're growing, not just as a team, right? Like that we're doing good work and we're working together well and we're, you know, proving ourselves out with performance in market, maybe winning some awards along the way. It's never a bad thing, right? But that they're individually, yeah, that they're individually becoming a stronger professional, right? And that they can contribute to that team in a more meaningful way. And that's not just, you know, in making sure that they have those opportunities to grow individually, but also to share all of that information, right, across the team so that collectively we're getting stronger. And I think how that ties into the culture is that when you've established that sort of trust, the work can get better, right? Everyone in the room feels like they can trust the people around them. They're constantly learning, sharing, It's not an expectation that you need to have all the answers, right? Like that's not what it's about. It's about making sure that everyone in the room is continuing to get better. And then we can have very honest conversations about what's working or what's not, right? It's not just about giving, being able to sort of bring new ideas to the table, but also challenge like, okay, are we drinking the Kool-Aid here guys? Or is this maybe not the coolest thing since sliced bread, right? And that takes a level of trust you know, around the people around you. So I think that it sort of underpins that that relationship element and sort of works hand in hand with like, you do good work when you're working well with the people around you and you've sort of built that relationship where you feel confident bringing your ideas to the table, questioning others and sort of making sure everyone's sort of improving. I have to ask, what was the last thing you learned and what was the last thing you shared? I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll give you something from hours ago, uh, which I know is, is sort of time stamps us. But I was, uh, I was on a call with Meta early this morning talking about their new app, oh, right? Threads? Threads. And like, yes. Yes. Like, what is that going to be? What does that look like? Um, I think that was an instant, like I learned it and immediately got on the horn with the whole team of like, let's dive in. You know, what do we need to do to protect our brand in this space? How should we be thinking about it, et cetera? And obviously it's very early. They were, they were very honest that they sort of haven't figured out how they're monetizing it yet. They were sort of like, it's a little too soon to know. Um, but it does launch, you know, in the next 24 hours. So I think it's important to, to hit the ground running and social, I think just overall as sort of a, a platform um, continues to sort of be a, a, ripe ground for fresh learning. I think that that is constantly changing. And so one of the the things that our team does, you know, before we go into creative development for any of our work is to lean on our partners, not just, you know, our agency partners, but also our platform partners to better understand what is different in those spaces, because it is constantly changing, not just what's available, but how the algorithm works, what the new ad formats are, like what people are doing. And I think that that's, you know, a testament to just like, I'm just going to keep beating the relationship drum today, apparently, 
Um, but I think that extends to your to your wider teams, right? It's like leaning on your platform partners is a benefit to you and to the work that you do because they know that space best. And so making sure that you're like carving out time to learn from them to understand what is it that's working? What is it that's, that's sort of changing? What are we kind of seeing? And it's like nascent stages that we might be able to capitalize on. Like you can only do that if you keep in touch with them, maintain those relationships and sort of regularly, you know, touch base. Is there any example of something like uh, that you found to be successful because you leaned on a, on a platform partner? Yeah, you know, I'll, uh, I'll talk about last year. We, um, we did our sort of first foray into um, custom, custom content on social, particularly on TikTok. So we like launched on TikTok last year. Um, and going into that, we wanted to make sure that we partnered very closely with our reps to sort of understand what works, what doesn't, like how does this go? Um, and so we had a couple deep dive sessions, right. With all of our creative partners, like these big, you know, virtual rooms full of all of our sort of strategic and creative minds to talk to these platform partners and really poke, poke them on like, what's, you know, how does this work? And what, what does that mean? And what are sort of the best practices here? And like, can you give us examples of these things, et cetera. Um, and so we launched into production last summer. We, we, we launched the work in, in the fall and we saw incredible performance in platform. We're talking like double digit beating out the FinServe benchmark on TikTok. It was wow. fantastic. Very exciting stuff. And then in addition to that, um, won a bunch of awards for it too, which again, never hurts, right? Love a little hardware for the hardware. Yeah, put that so, on the mantle. Yeah, I think it was a testament. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And it just goes to show that I mean, I will fully back relationships matter in every aspect of life, like work relationships. Your job is going to be so much easier if you're confident and trust. Yeah, trust. It goes back to trust. Yeah. Trust that they have your best interests and trust that you have, you know, the collective best interest in mind because we're all ultimately the main character in our own movies <laughs> going, you know, trying to do the best we can. Um, yeah. Sorry to put you on the spot, but... In our prep call, you mentioned that it's uh, a constant process keeping a, a brand like insurance sexy. And I think that word was such a fun, hilarious word. Can you talk about uh, your work in trying to keep something as, you know, ephemeral as insurance sexy <laughs> or what that means to you? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad, I'm glad that resonated. Um, yes. Yeah, you'll tell, like I said, it's, it's an intangible, you know? And so I think it's hard. It's a hard product to sell um, in part because like we, like we mentioned too, like the benefit isn't something you really want to talk about. You don't want to be like, Hey, imagine you're in this place where you've experienced utter devastation. And like, that's the moment we're going to be there for you. Like, you don't want to be thinking about that when you're scrolling through, you know, TikTok, right. And like checking out what's, what's hot. And so I think that it's really about, finding ways to sort of integrate our brand icons and our brand cues um, in ways that feel natural uh, and also sort of relevant to our consumers, right? So making sure we're showing up in, in the right place with the right tone, um, that way that you're, you know, you're thinking about us when, when the time comes. And I think that a lot of that is, is keeping a finger on the pulse of how, you know, how these different places operate how you should be showing up in those places. I think 
the big sort of conversation before we were really getting into, you know, TikTok and the difference between um, TikToks and Reels and sort of what that looks like was CTV and like what CTV was going to do to the experience, right? And like, how should we think about that? Is that digital? Is that broadcast? Like, what does that look like? And so I think it's just about constantly, you know, reevaluating what the media environment looks like keeping in mind the headspace your consumers are in um, and making sure that you're showing up in a way that feels right. So it needs to work, but it also shouldn't be, you know, scary. It shouldn't be something that uh, is a turnoff. It's, it's got to be something positive and, and that's, that's sticky. When you said the difference between what works on Reels versus TikTok, all I thought was like, which generation you're catering to? Like. Yeah. <laughs> are you catering to like the hip people who are in it or the people my age who are like, what is this? What are we doing here? I'm going to, I'm going to consume this. My couple favorite weeks later. meme is something like that. That's like, I consume my content on Instagram reels, like two or three weeks after it's popular, like an adult, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's I think, the big difference. Yeah. It's incredible. And I know that you can't divulge a lot of uh, corporate information, but if, if there's anything that you can share about projects you're excited about or directions that you're you're taking with your team or, or the people at Farmers, uh, we'd love to hear. Yeah, you know, we just wrapped on uh, a whole new TV, digital, and social uh, production this summer. So it's going to be launching here real soon. That's exactly what Mackenzie was referencing. This uh, lovely Professor yes. Burke portrait <laughs> comes from comes from that shoot and is now office decor, uh, which sort of shows up in my background now because it was too cool not to keep, you know, it's sort of one of those bobbles that that sticks around. (laughs) So yeah, just wrapped a big production. We've got a new, you know, new slew of work coming out. And I think that we're, we're really excited about it. We sort of took that same, the same process that we did last year and sort of revolutionized it for 2023. And and we're excited to see that, uh, hit the market. Can't wait. Well, I can't wait to, uh, Keep that jingle fresh in my head because I'm having a hard time not singing it right now. Just yeah. by everything that we've said. I'm like, it's been hard. Yeah, I wanna do it, but I'm gonna I'm gonna refrain. So next up, we're gonna ask you some questions that we asked to everybody who's been on the podcast, just to get to know you a little better. And the first question is, what have you done recently for the very first time? Yeah, okay, this is an interesting one. I will say that I'm a self-proclaimed neophile. So I am all about seeking novelty and like my friends and family know that like on a monthly basis, I like to do one new and interesting thing that sort of keeps things, you know, wild. I think um, my June activity, which is like, like a little lackluster with some turtle races to go check out what that is like uh, over in Santa Monica. But I think, uh, I think what I'm more excited about, like the first that's on the horizon um, is I'm actually going to be heading to Burning Man for the first time ever in yes. August. So Whoa. it's serious prep mode right now. Yeah. Are you, do you have an outfit? You're like, I'm, so, I have so many questions. Are you going with the group? Like what's, what's your theme you're going for your outfit wise and everything? Um, I, I really want to know. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know what? It's a lot of prep. It's yeah. like a lot of prep that goes into it. It sort of like takes your focus for quite some time. Um, going with friends, obviously we're figuring out the whole camp setup, figuring out how right, you know, right. what we're going to do. We just rented, uh, we rented a solar powered tricked out van nice. for the week. Yes. So we've got like a really cool home base 
yeah. uh, in addition to all the, you know, the standard camp stuff. So yeah. And then, you know, outfit wise, that's a, that's a July activity, figuring out all the things and sort of coordinating across the group. What makes oh, yeah. sense. Um, but it's cool. It's really exciting. It's going to, and that's going to be like a major first for the year bucket list, oh, yeah. first, which is kind of cool. Yeah. It's really that's amazing so awesome. how massive that celebration has become and how, yeah. like what a cultural pillar it's become. And you get to really go for it on the outfits. Like, don't hold back. You yeah. can really go <laughs> yes. wild. You want to show up on some of those Burning Man best of lists. <laughs> yes. Totally. I got to tell you, I'm so excited. I'm a huge art nerd, you know? Like, I love, that's like my thing. And so these giant art installations are like yeah. my bread and butter. I'm super pumped. And I've um, I've taken a trip out to Bombay Beach before some of the Burning Man art ends there and so mm -hmm. you can go check out some of the older installations from Burning Man's past and like it was such an experience so I'm super excited to be there from the ground up watch it go from nothing to these giant fixtures it's gonna be it's gonna be an awesome time I'm stoked yeah that's amazing I'm I'm kind of jealous uh I had a friend same, that wrote yeah a book. same <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend that wrote a book called Available uh his name is Madison Perry it's a great very comedic book, but it was all about how, uh, after a devastating breakup, he made his life's goal to go to Burning Man and like have a total experience. And it's in the book and it's, it's sort of like true essays. He's a big time storyteller guy and it is so funny. That's amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm gonna have to check it out. I'm gonna have to read yeah. up, you know, yeah. before I make my way out there. Yeah. It's very funny. Uh, our second question is, uh, if you were to be invited to a show and tell right now, what item do you think you would bring and why? It would be hard not to bring a bobble, right? <laughs> I like was wondering. This super, <laughs> super fun JK thing. Um, I have a ton, you know, much, much like the JK thing, I've got like tons of really fun pieces from different productions, both with farmers and, it, it, you know, in my past life on the agency side that sort of are all around the house. I have a giant like owl sculpture in the living room. Like I've got all kinds yeah. of weird stuff that just materializes. Um, but, you know, I would probably say one thing that will not be as cool visually, but certainly much more meaningful is um, a quote book that I carry. I carry this small little book in my purse at all times. And I've got a couple tucked away in different areas just in case I ever sort of leave it behind um, because I love jotting down quotes and not just like standard, you know, like the, the, the sort of like, uh, live, laugh, you know, love. things that you'd read online. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> not the live, laugh, love, right? Um, Dance like no one's watching. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So not those, um, things that are more things that people say sort of like organically or things that I'm reading on the street or different things like that. So I have a bunch of different ones of those. Um, and I keep that with me at all times and I fill that thing to the brim and then I do like a data dump and I put it all into a document I've been compiling. It's like, I don't even know, middle school, I think is when that sort of started. And it's just like all this really interesting stuff that sort of just resonates in the moment. Um, and it's really fun. And I think, my friends know that that's like part of the thing. So if we go on a big, like a girl's trip, or we go on a big vacation or something like that. Anything that they say is sort of like fair game and might make its way into the book. And so <laughs> yes. like, as we that's go good. through the document, they yeah. get weird, but it's, it's fun. It's a, it's a fun thing. You see there's professional aspects. I have 
I have things like um, what comes to mind professionally is like um, advertising isn't a job. It's a lifestyle. You know, there's like lots of like little things that people just say here and there that you're like, yeah, that's good. I like that. You know, let's write that down. Um, So that's probably my show and tell item because it gives you a good sense of like where I was, what I was doing, what kind of like resonated and and, what I could do with it. It's like a cousin of journaling in a way. Yeah. The last question is, if you were to meet a younger version of yourself, what piece of advice do you think you would give? Yeah. What would I tell my younger self? Um, You know, I think that I sort of am notorious for packing my schedule to the brim. Like I am like always (laughs) on the go. Um, And I've done that for a long time. Like since I was very young, I've sort of like always done a lot of different things. And I sort of had this mentality at a younger age of like, I'll sleep when I'm dead. You know, like it was one of those things of like, who needs sleep? That's just like a waste of time. Like, let's just get more going. And I think that when I was in graduate school, so when I was in graduate school, I was working full time and going to school full time. So I was like pushing that you know, mantra to the extreme because it was just like such a drain. I was getting only a few hours of sleep each night. Like it was a wild time. And I came across, um, on the Joe Rogan podcast, Joe Rogan was, um, interviewing Matthew Walker, who's a sleep scientist. It was originally at Harvard. Now, now he's over at UC Berkeley. Um, and sleep is like his thing. And I listened to this podcast and it like changed my whole perspective on life. And I like went and bought his book. It, he wrote a book called Why We Sleep. And I like dove, you know, headfirst into all of that. I got a Fitbit to do sleep monitoring. This was in the days before the Apple Watch could do anything sleep related. Like it was the only device that I could get. Um, and I learned so much more about sleep health and like the importance to the important, you know, cornerstone of your self-care routine, in my opinion, is sleep. And so I think to my younger self, I would say, we're not sleeping when we're dead. We need to be sleeping now and we need to sort of yes. not just prioritize, <laughs> but operationalize that. I think you hear a lot of, you, you read a lot of advice online that sort of like you need to prioritize your mental health or you need to prioritize self-care. And I think that's like a lovely sentiment, but also means nothing in a lot of ways. Um, it's really about operationalizing it, right? It's like, how am I physically carving out the time like what am I doing to sort of make sure that those things happen instead of just going that's really important to me like I need to make sure that I get to that because you can so often say okay well like later today or tomorrow or you know just this one time I think it's really about operationalizing that and I think that to my younger self I would say like you've got to operationalize your sort of sleep schedule and make sure that that's rock solid uh, because you can never get that that time back. I so agree with this because I just got two hours of sleep last night um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, Fourth of July, you know, fireworks and everything um, with animals is always a uh, very interesting time. But um, it's so true. And I feel like you function better as a human being where you're like, okay, I can actually do all these things. And like you said, not packing it full. I think that's probably one of the most solid uh, piece of advice for a younger self. Cause I can remember working at a coffee shop specifically because I got free coffee uh, because of lack of sleep. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. You need it. You need it now. <laughs> they start early and you yes. can ebb them off if you commit to a better sleep yes. schedule, you know? 
This has been amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yes, thank you. If there's anything else or if there's any socials or anything you wanted to mention or ways that people can get in touch if they're inspired. Yeah, you know, I, I guess since we mentioned the book, I'll throw it out. You know, the Treading in Toxicity is available on Amazon for purchase. Uh, it's a fun it's a fun little read. And it's not, you know, it's not dark and scary. It's more just about making sure you're prioritizing your organizational culture and taking care of yourself. You're awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks Have so much, guys. You're listening to a Brand Folder podcast, where we like to say, strong brands live here. Join us as we build the Brand Collective, a podcast for anyone curious about the people behind the brands that we all love. We're available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. And if you feel inspired, leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Until next time, this has been the Brand Collective.